Okay, so after studying all the introduction about chemistry and mechanism of transport across the membrane, permeability, and um, let's go into the study of the systems, and we're going to start with the nervous system. Nervous system, because that's what we're going to apply. All this knowledge of transport across the membranes, electricity, and we're going to talk about action potentials, electrical impulse, and, um, and what happens in the nervous system. A small scale and a big scale, how the nervous pathways work, how the neurotransmitters work in different areas of the brain. So let's start with the first thing that we do in anatomy always is to describe the components of the nervous system. And this is a, just a summary of this um, a description of the nervous system and two central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. That's how we study the nervous system under the anatomical aspect. But it's going to be useful also for functional from the physiology point of view. Central nervous system, brain and spinal cord, and peripheral nervous system, everything that comes out and connects to the central nervous system. We're talking about nerves, and that's how we have cranial nerves and spinal nerves. Cranial nerves coming out of the brain, and spinal nerves coming out of the spinal cord. You have the number of nerves that come out of each there, and these nerves, they contain different fibers, pathways that are going to be classified in somatic nervous system and autonomic nervous system. An important difference is noted here, the somatic nervous system is voluntary and autonomic is involuntary. Meaning that we consciously can control functions that um, are connected or performed by the somatic nervous system. Autonomic nervous system is completely involuntary, like the contraction of our intestines. And autonomic nervous system can even be classified into sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So in the sequence of the study of the nervous system, we're going to talk first about the microscopic part, the physiologic part, the level, molecular level, and then we're going to study the different parts of the central nervous system, brain, autonomic nervous system, and the spinal cord um, as part of the whole study of nervous system. So microscopically, we look for cells and the units. The units of the nervous system are the neurons. But the neurons are not by themselves. The neurons are always in an environment determined and regulated by cells called neuroglia, or glial cells. The neurons are the ones that make impulses. They start the electrical impulses, nerve signals. But the glial cells, they do not make impulses. They do not change electricity or something, but they support the neurons. Neurons don't divide, as you, as you know. Glial cells of neuroglia, they, they actually can divide. 
a very important part of scaring, of healing. I'm sorry, what was the first question? Healing and what was the other one? Scaring. Whenever there's a damage of the nervous system, like imagine someone having a, an important bleeding or gunshot that goes to a certain part of the brain or spinal cord, it will heal. It will heal if the compromise is not too much. Neurons will die, yes, but those spaces will be filled by neuroglia. The neuroglia will divide and will form fibrous tissue that will replace that space left by the dead neurons. Also, when we talk about brain tumors, most of them, if not all, are derived of glial cells, natural neurons. Because they are the ones that can divide and they go into malignant transformation sometimes. So these are four functions of the neuron. We can describe them functions of the neuron like this, responds to chemical and physical stimuli. They produce, make, and conduct electrochemical impulses. So here we use different types of words. We can use nerve impulse, electrical impulse, electrochemical impulse, nerve signal. All of these terms mean the same. That signal, that message in terms of electricity that is sent down by the neurons. They release chemical regulators as neurotransmitters and they are the ones that mediate all the functions of the nervous system in terms of uh, sensations, perception of sensations, learning complex functions like memory, control of muscles, glands, this is a very generic description. It means that the neurons are the ones in charge of all these functions. And it's not only one or two neurons. We will see that there are a network of neurons, networks of neurons that will control this in a very complex way. Under the microscope, the neurons can have different size and different shape depending on where they are, where in the central nervous system. And we can recognize some parts of the neurons, the description of the cell. We have a cell body, dendrites, and axon. Dendrites and axons sometimes are called nerve processes. Understanding the word process means projection, budding, or something. The dendrites and axons are processes. A cell body, and the cell body, that's where most of the cytoplasm is, that's where the nucleus is, organelles, nissle bodies, we call this nissle bodies, are actually endoplasmic reticulum. They are seen and described as nissle bodies. That's how we see them under the microscope. I'm sorry, can you point again? Where did you point something as a nissle? Are the nissle bodies? They are endoplasmic reticulum. And that's how we see it under the compound microscope, like these microscopes we have here. 
And the group of neurons, the group of neurons that we see in the central nervous system, they are called nuclei. Nuclei is a plural word, the singular word is nucleus. So nuclei means more than one. Groups of neurons, that's how we call them when we find them in the central nervous system. Don't confuse with the nucleus of the cell. It's a different, same term, but used for in, in a different way. In ganglia, when the neurons are found somewhere in the peripheral nervous system, Again, ganglia is a plural word. The singular word is ganglion. The dendrites and axons are processes, but here we see the first physiological um, uh, relation. The dendrites are the ones that receive electrical impulses, and axons are the ones that send, conduct the impulses or action potentials. That's another word for all these nerve signal. This term is more accurate to define what actually is a nerve signal, action potential. In the picture below, you can see a neuron with all the parts, axon, body, and dendrites, and the electrical impulse comes to the neuron in this direction and is passed in this way and the electrical impulse keeps traveling, always in that direction. Another way of putting this is the dendrites bring the input to the neuron, and the axons bring the output. The axons are connected to the cell body, to the body of the neuron, and that specific region, that area, is called axon hillock. The importance of the axon hillock, this is the place where action potentials are made. They are generated here in the initial segment of the axon. The axons can be very long up to one meter or two or three feet. They may have branches called collaterals. And an important aspect is that most of the axons are covered by myelin. Myelin, which is a, a mixture of uh, sphingolipids, phospholipids, lipids. And we'll see how important the myelin is um, wrapping the axon. Here in the diagram, we can see the axon wrapped by this myelin, covered by the myelin. But one thing is that the myelin cover is not a continuous cover. It comes in packs. This segment, this segment, this segment. The reason is because each of these segments or packs of myelin are made by this cell called Schwann cell. It's a different cell. This cell, very early in the development, it starts wrapping the axon and it will not wrap it continuously. Every cell will make the determined attack of myelin.
And there are gaps. There are gaps in between the packs of myelin called nodes of Renvier. We can see them under the microscope, and they have a very important function in the transmission of the signal down the axon. What else about the axon? Well, the axon connects the body of the neuron and it may travel a long distance. I was saying it may be long, as long as two or three feet. Consider, for instance, the distance of your brain, your cranium, to the distance of the spinal cord, like in the thoracic level or even in the lumbar level. So we're talking about this side or this side, two or, or exaggerating a little bit, three feet. I would say mostly like two feet, one feet. Uh, and why the axon, how the axon conducts or brings a, a nerve impulse? Well, everything is in terms of chemicals. Chemicals traveling in the axon. And since it is connected to the cytoplasm, the cytosol, that material that we find in the cytoplasm, is actually also in the axon, even though the axon is very thin. But there is a system of transport in the axon. And that's what we see here in this diagram at the bottom. We see the neuron body and the axon. And the axon goes all the way to the end or synaptic terminal. That's how we call the end of this axon. And we see like this picture like roads or railroads going back and forth. This is called axonal transport mechanism. And what these little cars are bringing are neurotransmitters, molecules of neurotransmitters, which we see that they are released in the synaptic terminal. That is the way that the neurons pass the signals to the next neuron. And whatever is not used or already used may be taken back to the cytoplasm. These neurotransmitters are proteins, they are chemicals that are made in the neuron body and they are carried all the way down to the terminal and they may be reused and they're taken and that's called axonal transport mechanism. Yes? It is protection, but it's also important in the conduction of the action potential or the electrical signal, both things. Well, this system is described as anterograde and retrograde transport, uh, depending on the direction it goes. And there are some proteins involved here, like kinesine, dynein, which are the components of the rows of the railroads are coming down and back and forth. Now, the neurons can be of different types. We can classify them according to the function in sensory neurons, motor neurons, and association or interneurons. Association neurons or interneurons. There's another word for this, sensory or afferent 
and more or ethered. Sensory are neurons that bring impulses towards the central nervous system, the input. And motor neurons are the ones that bring impulses from the CNS to target organs. In other words, the output. And association neurons are neurons that connect. Uh, they connect the input with the output. And maybe one, maybe two, three, or hundreds of neurons. And here we can see the three types of neurons. Sensory neuron, which can be represented as the input. The motor neuron, which is the output. And here, in this box, we have the interneurons, and this diagram is only one, but it may be, as I said, two, three, or thousands of neurons. And in this system, we have the input, we have the output, and this box will be the control center or integrated center. And that's how we understand the nervous system as a system, as any other system, with an input, a processing center, a control center, and an output. Like the same one we did in homeostasis. We talked about these three components of homeostasis. Input, uh, processing center, and output. Here, the interneurons are very important. If we think in terms of, let's say, the reflex, like you touch something, a hot object, it's too hot and it burns, you withdraw your hand. Well, the input is that sensation of excessive hot, heat brought to your nerves and to the brain you know, a lot of neurons that will process that information and it will decide withdraw the hand and signals come down to move your muscles and to withdraw your hand from the um, uh, hot object so that's how we understand the nervous system everything that we will describe always think about that input processing center and output it will help a lot to understand Now the motor neurons, remember the, the diagram at the beginning describing the parts of the nervous system. Motor neurons can be of two types, somatic or autonomic. Somatic neurons are the ones that fit into that part of the nervous system that we say voluntary. Somatic neurons we voluntarily control our muscles, we can contract our muscles and our will. That is achieved by the uh, mediation of motor neurons. The reflexes that we usually take with the physical examination, they involve, involve motor neurons. And autonomic motor neurons are neurons that will innervate organs that we do not control voluntarily, like smooth muscle of the intestines, bronchi, cardiac muscle, glands. In other words, autonomic motor neurons are found in autonomic nervous system, say sympathetic or parasympathetic.
And this diagram is showing us another way of seeing these connections. We have the sensory neuron, sensory neuron, bringing the impulse to the central nervous system. And here we will find interneurons in the spinal cord that will connect to the motor neuron. And the impulse comes out. But we have another neuron here. This is an autonomic motor neuron, which can receive connection from interneurons and mediate other actions. Like, in the same example, when you're touching a hot object and burns your hand, it is very painful. One thing is that you would draw your hand. The other thing is the pain. Sometimes it's so, so severe that you will pass out. How do you pass out? That is mediated by autonomic, neuron, autonomic neur uh, neurons. Autonomic motor neurons that are sending signals to your smooth muscle or the blood vessels to dilate, your blood pressure goes low, and um, you pass out because of the pain. So this input may come from the sensory neuron and the output may involve motor neurons, autonomic neurons, depends on the reaction that we have. And the classification of neuron basic structure is shown here. Let's mention this type multipolar bipolar and pseudo-unipolar. The definition or the description of these neurons is multipolar receive a lot of connections and send one axon. The bipolar receive one connection and sends out one connection. And the pseudo-unipolar it is actually bipolar but if you see the shape of the body of the neuron and how the process, which is only one, but then branches in two, um, it makes it look like a unipolar because it's actually only one connection out of the body. Unipolar, we may say. But it's not. It's actually there are two branches of that only process. It is actually a bipolar. But we describe it as a pseudo-unipolar because it's unique by the shape. And in all cases, you see the impulse traveling in this direction. There's always one direction in the transmission of the electrical impulse along the neuron. And in this diagram on the side, we can see the structure of a nerve. A nerve is a bundle of, um, it's a big bundle containing fascicles or small, smaller bundles of axons. So one nerve contains thousands of axons and each axon belongs to one neuron. We'll see more about that and how it is organized in different ways. Now let's describe all those cells called glial cells or neuroglia. 
We say they are support cells. They do not conduct electrical impulse. In the peripheral nervous system, we find two of these cells, Schwann cells and satellite cells. We saw some of the Schwann cells. They are the ones that provide the myelin around the axon. Another name for that is neural lymphocytes, neural lymphocytes. Schwann cells is very known. Satellite cells, they are also found in the peripheral nervous system, but they are found in the ganglia. In the previous slide, we said groups of neurons in the central nervous system are called nuclei. Neurons located in the peripheral nervous system are called ganglia. Well, these satellite cells are actually surrounding neurons in the ganglia, in the peripheral nervous system. Like we see in the dorsal root ganglia that's found in the spinal nerves coming out of the spinal cord, we see that. And that's the only place, the ganglia, dorsal root ganglia, are the only place where we find pseudo-unipolar neurons. And that's why the example here is showing this pseudo-unipolar neuron where we can see Schwann cells providing packs of myelin around the axon, but we also see the satellite cells which are surrounding the body of those neurons. And in the central nervous system, we find up to four different types of neuroglia or glial cells. Oligodendrocytes, they are also related with myelin. They make myelin, but to uh, surround axons that are found in the central nervous system. Microglia, they are the immune system cells of the nervous system, they are able to phagocytize foreign material. They are the phagocytes of the brain or the central nervous system. Astrocytes, they surround the neurons and they're very important, they regulate. They are the ones that, in a way, filter whatever comes in the blood and reaches the neuron. It has to go first through the astrocytes. The astrocytes are controlling that, regulating that. Ependymal cells, they are cells that make cerebrospinal fluid, CSF. We'll see that there is a fluid called CSF or cerebrospinal fluid. It has very important functions. And ependymal cells are the ones that make this fluid in a place called the ventricles. Now let's see more about the myelin. All axons in the PNS, peripheral nervous system, are surrounded by Schwann cells. Schwann cells and that sheath of myelin called neurilemma. 
As I was mentioning, early in the development, these cells surround the axons and start making many, many turns and wrapping the axon at the end. Uh, we have the axon covering many, many layers of myelin. And the gaps are called nodes of reindeer, the gaps between the packs of uh, myelin. But in the central nervous system, there's also myelin. There's also axons in the central nervous system. Axons that are at the beginning of the bodies of neurons or axons that are connecting one neuron to other neuron in the brain, for instance. Well, these axons are also covered by myelin, and, but in this case, that myelin cheese is made by oligodendrocytes. And the difference is that the oligodendrocytes, they are not providing like individual packs. The oligodendrocytes send extensions to several axons, and those extensions will wrap a section of an axon. That's what we see here. The oligodendrocyte sending extensions of the cytoplasm to axons. And these myelin sheaths are a little different. They are not so thick like in the peripheral nervous system. But they still show nodes of reindeer. Little gaps in between connections of the oligodendrocytes. And this presence of myelin is what gives us the aspect of the nervous tissue. When we say white matter, what we are seeing is parts of the nervous system containing lots of myelin, meaning axons covered by myelin. And when we see gray matter, we're seeing mostly regions where there are more bodies of neurons, dendrites, which are not covered by myelin. Now we know that the neurons cannot be cannot divide. They cannot reproduce. If they are damaged, they die, they cannot replace themselves. But if we damage an axon, that axon may regenerate, may recover from the damage. And this uh, is the process of regeneration of axons in the peripheral nervous system. As a matter of fact, when we have a, an injury of the nerve, for instance, someone slits the wrists with a very sharp object or knife or anything and compromises nerves that are here, like the ulnar nerve or median nerve, uh, what we do is to repair the damage, of course. We bring the tendons together and we stitch them up. But the median nerve may be transected or cut. What we do is just stitch it up, bring it both ends, put it together. Now, will that fix the problem? Well, the stitching will bring the both ends of the axon very close. And then the process of regeneration may be favored. Now, the axons will not be connected back one-to-one, -one probably, but 60, 70% of them, they will be reconnected. 
and this process happens. Like, see the site of the injury here? This axon has been cut, transected. And what happens is that the proximal end starts making a tube of Schwann cells. So those Schwann cells are the ones that start dividing and providing like a guide so the axon will reconnect. Little by little we see more Schwann cells guiding the axon that has been injured and the axon is, is cell membrane, it's plasma membrane that can be regenerated. Always, of course, if the Schwann cell favors this reconnection. And that's the rationale of stitch the nerve, put it together. We are favoring the connection, making it easier for the axons. But if you remember, the nerve is a thousands of axons. How they can, how we can match them up. Well, you don't have to, you just put them together. The axons will look for connections and they will do their best. And actually happens, as I said, 60-70% uh, reconnection is successful. Which means that perhaps that person is not able to move everything, all the muscles of the hand, but at least 60%, 70% of the function, which can be increased to 80-85% or 90% by physiotherapy, physical therapy. And of course, it depends on the severity of the damage. Sometimes the percentages are not so high in the <coughs> degree of damage. Questions to this point? Yes? Um, differences in uh, fine motor skills, can that be attributed to how big the myelin sheet's coverage is, or what is the role? The myelin sheet is very important, especially during development. And um, every single person has different number and type of connections. And uh, during the development, and that's part of the learning process and acquisition of skills, like you say, fine motor skills, if they are stimulated from very early in life, like you see those kids that learn to how to play the piano, like uh, two years old, and then when they are 10 years old, they are like amazing uh, people playing the piano. Well, what happens is during that process, early in the process, from birth, and even before birth, up to four or five years old, the kid is making myelin a lot. What for? For establishing more connections and new connections everywhere in the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system. And if some of these skills are stimulated from very early, well, those kids will establish more connections in that sense. Uh, and not only in the aspect of music, but also in other aspects of the learning process. And that's why we, we, we there, there are studies and there, are, this is very known that people that learn how to play a musical instrument very early, it correlates very well with other skills like organization skills, methodic skills, and in other aspects of life. And it's most of it related to connections established by the axons favored by Schwann cells and the myelination process. That's why it's very important, the nutrition. And what about people that have like a higher threshold for like pain? Um, what is that about um, in terms of, is there something wrong with their autonomic nervous system or? No, that's different because if we talk about pain and sensations, there are two things, sensation and perception. The perception is a conscious processing 
of the sensation. That's why you see different people with different thresholds for pain. Uh, may be related with some branching, but especially after um, injury of nerves, because mostly all the receptors and everything, everyone is standard. But the thing that changes is the perception of the pain. Uh, some people are very uh, sensitive to pain, some people are very resistant. Though. But that's usually perception aspect. Any other question? Did you say yeah, it is important. Nutrition is important because myelin is lipids. And kids must have the proper level of lipids during growth and development. Of course, not excessive because uh, it's, it's not good, but we uh, should not go to the other side. Like, sometimes on misunderstandings and when the kids start gaining weight, they deprive completely of lipids. Well, that's not good. If it's like two, three, five years old, you should not do that. Always, it's about keeping the balance. It's not all just go to extreme positions. But we see that a lot in um, areas of the world where nutrition is really bad, and there are malnutrition and deficiency of nutrients at all levels. That affects learning also a lot. Uh, in many other countries where they have the deficit of nutrients in that aspect, there may be, and there's a correlation with uh, learning problems uh, early in life. After age five, the man doesn't After? After age five. Yeah, the main connections, the main connection that establishes like uh, the, the skills to move all the muscles, the establishment of main connections in the brain, that is uh, well established. But even bef even after that, they there are new connections that are established. And that's called uh, neuroplasticity. And that's how we can learn how to play a musical instrument at any age just or any skill we can acquire any skill maybe difficult for some people but it's still possible and that's because we're always establishing new connections you know and this process is active so the astrocytes are the type of glia and this is very important because it's like a filter between the blood and the neurons. The astrocytes protect the neurons in a way of things, substances that may be harmful for the neurons, select the type of nutrients, electrolyte levels, hydrogens, potassium, sodium, and uh, as you see in the diagram, there are like connections between the blood and the neuron, the blood vessel and the neuron. And they are the most abundant in the uh, nervous system. They are components of something that we call blood-brain barrier. It's another representation of the blood-brain barrier and astrocytes. We see the blood vessel here cut in a transverse way in a section. And the walls of this blood vessel contain cells called endothelial cells that are like part of this filter or barrier. And then after we have a red ring here, which is called the basement membrane. And then around projections like feet belonging to astrocytes that are actually in contact with the blood vessel and the nutrients. And then the, they will establish contacts with, uh, the, with the neuron. And in that way, 
they're an important part of the blood-brain barrier. When um, someone has infections like meningitis, for instance, we treat it with antibiotics. But not all antibiotics are able to reach the nervous system. We cannot use, let's say, if there's an infection of the brain, meningitis, with uh, bacterium that also affects other parts of the body. And we treated the standard, standard treatment for that is antibiotic one. We cannot use antibiotic one if the infection is in the brain because the blood-brain barrier would not let that antibiotic reach the nervous system. We need to select a different type of antibiotic that is able to cross this blood-brain barrier. So that's how protective the astrocytes and blood-brain barrier uh, are. All right, questions? And after this introduction of uh, some aspects of the nervous system at the cellular level, let's get into the physiology of the neurons. And this is something that we discussed last time, the resting membrane potential. The neurons have this resting membrane potential, and we can measure it. It is, we can just round the number and use the 70, minus 70 millivolts. And we discuss a little bit who determines or what determines this particular resting memory potential. It is determined by the presence of large molecules negatively charged inside the cells. It is established or maintained by sodium-potassium pumps. And third, but changes in permeability of the membrane, which make sodium potassium move across and change the charge of the membrane. At rest, there is higher concentration of potassium inside the cell and higher concentration of sodium outside the cell, as we see in that diagram. There's more sodium outside and more potassium inside. Resting conditions, resting memory potential. And let's start using two terms here, depolarization and repolarization. The term depolarization stands for a change, a change in the electrical charge, in this case of the membrane, of the cell membrane. And repolarization means the return to initial memory potential. That can be represented with a curve, as we see here. In the x-axis, we have the time in milliseconds, and the y-axis, the values of the membrane potential in millivolts. If we start, the baseline here is showing minus 60. Remember, we said this value varies between minus 60, 65, 75. Well, but that's the baseline in this particular diagram. That is called 
the resting member potential, the baseline. Minus 60 in this diagram. If that curve goes up quickly, the value will change and it will be like plus 20, 25. That is called depolarization because the polarity of the membrane is changing from minus 60 to plus 20, plus 25. From being negative, it's turning positive. And that change in the membrane is represented by this curve. And this is what happens when a neuron is stimulated, neuron is resting, and resting membrane potential is stimulated by something, and it will change its polarity. It will depolarize. What happens actually at this membrane level? This is the resting condition. So we see inside negative, inside the cell, inside the axon is negative, the outside is positive. But when depolarization happens, S stands for stimulus. Stimulus will come and it will make this change. Now inside the cell, it turns positive and outside negative. And we say the cell is depolarizing. Now there's a peak in the curve, and that's the moment at which this depolarization stops, and the next moment will start called repolarization, which is the return to initial levels. And that is represented down here in this third when the membrane is returning to the initial, I mean, it's completely polarized here. And then one more stage here missing, which is negative inside and positive outside again. That will be the repolarization. These two are representing depolarization. And then after that it returns to the memory to resting memory potential. Those are changes that happen in the membrane potential after a stimulus. And that's what the neurons have. That's what the neurons do all the time. What is that a stimulus? Well that a stimulus may be that neuron connected to the receptor in the skin that is detecting hot temperature or something sharp that stimulates pain. Well, that pain is traveling along the axons as action potential. And it reaches the other neuron, and the other neuron stimulus. The neuron changes polarity, and that's how the neurons communicate to each other. Questions to this point? We're going to more, go more into detail of this, every single segment of this curve and what happens at the molecular level. Um, here we have it again, that same curve. And in terms of transfer across the membrane and state of electrolyte, what happens? Depolarization happens when positive ions suddenly start getting inside the cell. I'm talking about sodium. When the stimulus comes and the membrane switches polarity, what is happening is that sodium is coming into the cell. The sodium, remember, is positive. So if it, lots of sodium gets inside, the inside of the cell will become more positive. 
Now there is a segment here in the curve. There is a segment that is showing. If you notice this curve coming up, all the, up to the peak, and then returning, repolarization. But then it goes even lower than the resting baseline level. That little moment is called hyperpolarizing because it's repolarizing but going back even lower than the initial state. But then slowly returns to the level of resting potential. What happens during the repolarization and hyperpolarizing phase? Well, during that time, what happens is positive ions leave the cell. Potassium leaves the cell during repolarization and hyperpolarization. Now these two moments, depolarization happens when there's a stimulus and we say the neuron is stimulated. Depolarization is considered excitatory signal. Hyperpolarization, and the other way, when it goes even lower than the initial state, the resting member potential is called inhibitory because it makes it more difficult for the neuron to be stimulated at that particular moment of hyperpolarization. How can all the sodium comes in? Potassium leaves, what are the exact mechanisms? They are related with channels, ion channels. Potassium, for potassium, there are two types of channels for potassium in the membrane. One type of channels are not gated, meaning that they're always open, called leakage channels. And the other type of channel for potassium is voltage-gated, meaning that it is controlled by the voltage. It is controlled by changes of the membrane potential. At resting potential, these gates are closed. But when the potential changes and the cell is depolarized, then these channels will open. They are sensitive to changes in the voltage. That's for potassium. For sodium, there are voltage-gated channels which are closed at rest. But when the voltage changes, again, these channels will open and allow sodium to move across. Now what happens if I open a sodium channel? The sodium will move in which direction? From inside to outside or from outside to inside? Huh? If the channel opens, what does how the sodium moves? It comes in the cell or comes out? It goes in. Why? Because there's more sodium outside than in. Yeah. Simple as that. We just have to open the sodium channel. You open the door, and since there's more sodium outside than inside, the sodium will rush in. That's what happens. 
That's how this uh, depolarization is explained. So these voltage-gated sodium channels, they open and respond only when the voltage changes, when the member potential changes. But that change happens, I mean, the, the opening happens when the member potential reaches this point around minus 55. What was the value that we established uh, at the beginning? Minus 70. That's the resting member potential. So for the voltage-gated sodium uh, channels open, this potential must go from minus 70 to minus 55, and then the sodium channels will open. Otherwise, it won't open. They are voltage-gated channels. And as we said, the sodium rushes in because of the gradient. There's more sodium outside than inside. This particular value is called threshold, meaning that the sodium channels will open only if the member potential reaches that level of minus 55. Remember, all this is in the context of a neuron is stimulated. And after the stimulation, the neuron will respond. So if we open these channels, the member potential starts rising and going up until reaching equilibrium. Sodium comes in, but there's a limit for that. There's equilibrium reached. And no more sodium will come in. These channels will close when the equilibrium is reached in terms of sodium. And at some point, which is approximately plus 30 millivolts, when the sodium equilibrium is reached, without changing the voltage, now is activating potassium channels. And the potassium channels will open. And when they open, the potassium will move in which direction? From inside to outside or outside to inside? Or is there more potassium? It's inside the cell. So the potassium will leave the cell. Potassium rushes out. And what happens? The cell is losing positive charges, and now the curve is coming down, returning to initial state. That's called repolarization. The cell repolarizes. And there's a limit for that. That limit is uh, equilibrium of potassium. That happens at resting member potential values. So this is all that happens when a neuron is stimulated by any means. All these ions, I mean the channels will open, allow sodium, potassium flow in different ways, determining an action potential. This is called action potential, this change of electricity across the membrane. How we see it represented here. And we see the description of main events happening. During depolarization, sodium coming into the axon. During repolarization, potassium diffusing out of the axon. 